If we look to the beginning of Matthew 19, we see Jesus teaching in the area of Judea. He's teaching a large crowd. Actually, he's on the other side of the Jordan River, which suggests that he may have been in a region known as Perea. But what's significant is that he had moved south from Galilee, uh, which had been the setting for Matthew's gospel up until this point. And uh, there was a a large crowd that had gathered because news of Jesus' teaching and, uh, and healing ministry had gone before him. And within the crowd, there were Pharisees who wanted to test Jesus, and they'd already asked him a tricky question about divorce. And then we have this snippet, which appears in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and uh, which our translation refers to as the little children and Jesus. We're going to divide the passage up into three parts. We'll look at each in turn. Uh, So the three parts, what the people did, how the disciples responded, and how Jesus responded. So firstly, what the people did. So there's a large crowd of people around Jesus. There are followers and skeptics, believers and doubters, uh, the hopeful and the resentful. And almost everyone misunderstands who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And into the mix come a group of people who want Jesus to lay his hands on their children and pray for them. Uh, In Luke's gospel, he uses a word that's best translated infants or babies. So we can imagine these little ones being carried to Jesus uh, in the arms of their parents and relatives. And they want Jesus to lay his hands on them and give them a traditional blessing. It's a very typical thing to do in Jewish culture. It's a very typical thing to do in Christian culture when we celebrate communion. Uh, Very often babies will be brought forwards to receive a blessing. And I think it's natural for us to want God's blessing on our children. And as Christians, we believe that that blessing comes from bringing our children to Jesus. But generally speaking, within our culture, uh, bringing our children to Jesus is not a priority at all. In most homes and schools, Jesus doesn't get much of a look in. If you ask parents what they want for their children, I guess most would say something along the lines of, I want them to be happy, I want them to lead a good life. And if you press them further, they might talk about wanting their children to be successful, um, satisfied, and fruitful in various aspects of life. So uh, education, university, career, family life, relationships, and so on. But many, if not most parents, uh, do not necessarily see bringing their children to Jesus as something that's in the best interest of their children. In fact, it's often quite the opposite. A friend of mine drew my attention to a Church of England school um, near London in the UK, uh, where a group of parents have objected to a Christian organization called Crossteach leading assemblies at the school. Now, Crossteach work closely with local churches. Uh, They've been leading assemblies in this particular school for about 15 years, and they're not propagating anything novel. It's just mainstream Christian teaching. However, a group of about 30 parents have labelled their teaching a potentially damaging ideology. A local newspaper quoted the head teacher. He said, I do not believe cross-teach have done anything wrong. 
The charity do not deserve the tarnishing of their good name, nor allegations of extremism, and will continue to run voluntary after-school activities. Well, in spite of that from the head teacher, cross-teach are no longer allowed to lead assemblies in that school. Parents sending their children to a Christian school have decided that mainstream Christian teaching is a potentially damaging ideology. The prolific atheist Richard Dawkins goes one further. He says, and I quote, Do not ever tell a child you belong to this religion. That is child abuse. It's a very strong language indeed, and it's a sentiment that's becoming increasingly common. There are plenty of people who argue that children shouldn't be indoctrinated with the religious opinions of their parents. Bringing our children to Jesus is increasingly being seen as a somewhat suspect and perhaps even a dangerous thing to do. But children's thoughts, opinions, uh, beliefs and worldviews do not develop in a vacuum. Society is unrelenting in its efforts to indoctrinate all of us, not least our children, with the prevailing uh, uh, beliefs and values of our time. We have a lot of children uh, here at St. Andrews. About a third of the congregation is under the age of 10. Uh, and that's wonderful. We have a responsibility, uh, not just the parents, but us as a whole church, we have a responsibility to bring these children to Jesus. We love them and we want them to be blessed. And we want them to be blessed in a way that ultimately leads to their salvation. That's why we pray with them and for them. We pray as a family. We pray as a church. We uh, expose them to the good news of Jesus Christ. We learn all that we can so that we can teach and instruct them. Uh, we talk to them about our faith. We give them the space to uh, have doubts and ask questions. Uh, we get the Bible out at mealtimes or maybe bedtimes and, and learn together. We try and set them a godly example. And we raise them within the church. So that worshipping God seems like the most natural and normal thing in the world, which of course it is. And so that they can see the importance and the impact of our faith. Our culture is changing rapidly. A loose affinity to Anglicanism and Christianity will not give our children the grounding that they need to sustain them in the years ahead. We need to be very intentional uh, in the way that we disciple our children. So the people brought their babies to Jesus in order that he might bless them. We bring our children, uh, the children of this church, to Jesus, and we have a much fuller understanding of what that blessing entails, what it looks like. So we're talking about um, uh, close fellowship, a uh, relationship with Jesus that lasts forever in a renewed and restored creation. Of course, we want that for our children. We must bring our children to Jesus no matter what the opposition. In the case of today's passage, the opposition came not from society in general, it didn't, didn't, didn't come from the crowd, it came from Jesus' own disciples. Uh, which brings us to our next section, how the disciples responded. So we had a group of parents, they, they wanted the best for their children, so they brought them to Jesus for a blessing. And we've seen that that's exactly what we should be doing as Christians, bringing our children to Jesus, and not just as parents, it's a responsibility that lies uh, with the whole church. 
So how did the disciples respond? Well, they were pretty miffed, weren't they? Uh, I guess they were thinking, who are these people to be bringing their babies to Jesus? He doesn't have time for all this. So they rebuked them. They set about putting these people back in their place. Uh, Obviously, the parents of the children cared a great deal, but the disciples saw them as a nuisance, an unnecessary distraction. My great-aunt Muriel often used to say to me, children should be seen and not heard. I wasn't very good at being seen and not heard. I could sometimes manage to be heard and not seen. Uh, But that's very much how children were viewed in the ancient world uh, and by my aunt Muriel. Uh, Generally speaking, women were second-class citizens, children third-class citizens. And so that's how the disciples responded. And it was a response that was shaped by their culture. But the most important thing to consider is how Jesus responded. The wonderful thing about Jesus' kingdom message is that it turns established religious, social, and cultural norms on their heads. It did it when he first spoke this teaching, and it's still doing it today, 2,000 years later. Every culture develops its own hierarchies, social scales, and uh, ways of measuring success. Uh, Those at the top of the tree are normally the wealthy, the powerful, and the most capable. There's a scene in the uh, film The Matrix when the, the traitor Cypher meets in a restaurant with Agent Smith. If you're not familiar with the film, uh, The Matrix is an imaginary world that's been implanted into uh, the minds of human beings who are, in fact, being farmed like crops in little pod-type things. And everything they know is just an illusion. And Cypher has betrayed a handful of human beings who, had, who have avoided this fate. Uh, and he's negotiating what kind of life he's going to have implanted into his mind when he goes back into uh, the matrix. And I was struck when he said these words. He said, I want to be rich, someone important, like an actor. I remember thinking, why should an actor be deemed especially important? Why, Why would anyone think that an actor is more important than, say, a nurse or a road sweeper? On what basis does someone reach that conclusion? Human beings always establish some kind of pecking order. But our social scales mean nothing to God. Once again, Jesus blows all the preconceptions out the water with these words. He says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. This was a highly unusual thing to say. And I think often we can struggle to appreciate just how countercultural Jesus' teaching was and is. Imagine you stood outside a really upmarket hotel, somewhere like the Ritz, and along comes a very smartly dressed man in a three piece suit, uh, shiny shoes, pocket handkerchief, Samsonite luggage, the whole works, and the doorman stops him and says, Sorry, mate, you can't come in here dressed like that. And then two minutes later, along comes a tramp, uh, smelly, dirty, unkempt, carrying an assortment of plastic carrier bags. And the doorman says, good evening, sir. May I help you with your luggage? You'd be thinking, what's going on here? What's this all about? You'd you'd be confused. Well, that's the effect that Jesus' teaching would have had. He turned everything upside down. And actually, the main point of this passage is that it demonstrates God's reversal of human judgment. 
It's no coincidence that this comes straight after Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees who were testing Jesus. Um, They'd asked him that uh, tricky question about divorce. Well, Jesus answered wisely and well, as you might imagine, but then the Pharisees were watching Jesus. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? By welcoming babies in the way that he did, uh, Jesus begins to address a crucial question. Who belongs to his kingdom? Or to put it another way, to whom does the kingdom of heaven belong? Well, if anyone was sure about being in a right place with God, it was the Pharisees. They followed the Jewish law to the letter, or so they thought. Actually, they didn't. They did follow various rules and regulations, but they neglected the more important aspects of the law. Uh, In Matthew 23, Jesus says this to them, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So the Pharisees tithed from everything. They even gave 10% of what was on their spice racks, Uh, but they didn't practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Everything they did was for show, And Jesus saw right through their flimsy facade. The Pharisees sought the praise of men. They liked the fact that people thought they were uh, important, wise, upright, and holy. As far as they were concerned, if anyone deserved to belong to God's kingdom, it was them. They were self-righteous, believing that they'd attained the required level of morality and righteousness. But we cannot earn our way into the kingdom. None of us deserve, nor will we ever deserve what Jesus offers us. Salvation is a gift, not an achievement. And who can demonstrate that more effectively than a baby? Who has achieved less morally and religiously than a baby? Babies don't deserve to belong to the kingdom. They haven't done anything, but Jesus includes them on the basis that they are utterly dependent in the first instance on their parents, but ultimately on God. Babies are completely helpless. They have no option but to put their trust in those who love and care for them. And this perfectly illustrates the kind of humble trust that Jesus so often spoke about, the kind of trust that we are to have in him. We can't do anything to deserve our place in the kingdom. We simply put our hope and our trust in Jesus. That is not uh, an action. It's not something we do. It's a disposition. We relinquish our independence. We give it up and we recognize our total dependency on Jesus. Now, there might be someone here thinking, well, if we can't do anything to enter the kingdom of heaven, why try to be a a good Christian. Why don't we just uh, acknowledge our dependency on God and uh, crack on as normal? Uh, But cracking on as normal would only serve to demonstrate that we are not dependent on God. A baby's dependency induces and enables growth. It'll be a very strange baby that remained a baby year in, year out. Firstly, babies uh, crave their mother's milk. They want to be fed. 1 Peter 2 verse 2 says, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up 
in your salvation. Those to whom the kingdom belongs will be like babies craving pure spiritual milk. We should be hungry for the word of God, desiring to grow in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. We should be hungry to know Jesus better, to grow in our faith as Christians. If you've ever spent any time around babies, the one thing you'll have noticed is that they're always hungry. They always want milk, and they don't stay babies for very long. They grow and mature. You know, on a daily basis, you can see some change or other in them. Are we like babies? Are we hungry? Are we growing? Are we maturing as Christians? They're important questions, but let's be clear. Our growth in holiness is the result of our dependency. It is not the prerequisite for our salvation. Secondly, babies learn by imitating their parents. A baby learns to smile by looking at her mother's eyes and face. Uh, The baby smiles to connect and to communicate and to express herself. We are made in the image of God to have a relationship with God. It is by imitating God, imitating Jesus, that we learn to connect with him on a deeper level. The Christian life is about being changed and transformed to be more and more like Jesus. What better analogy than that of a baby uh, learning what it means to be human by imitating his or her parents? Babies are utterly dependent. They crave milk and they imitate their parents. And that is how we are to be as Christians. Uh, Totally dependent on God, craving spiritual nourishment and imitating Christ. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such people. Now, Jesus' assertion that the kingdom of heaven belongs to babies uh, was unexpected and countercultural even to uh, the predominantly Jewish audience. To the surrounding Greco-Roman culture, it would have sounded even more bizarre and out of place. Uh, in the Roman world, it was common to abandon unwanted newborns on rubbish dumps. Uh, in fact, Roman law allowed for this practice. It's a perfectly normal thing to do. The philosopher Seneca, writing around the time of Jesus, said this. He said, mad dogs we knock on the head, unnatural progeny we destroy. We drown even children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. In Jesus' day, infanticide was commonplace. We could argue, I think, that not a lot has changed in our culture today. The weakest and most vulnerable and the least protected by Roman law are, Jesus says, the ones who most truly show us what it means to accept and enter God's kingdom. Jesus' kingdom values do not line up with the world's values. In the early church, Christians used to rescue newborn babies from refuse heaps. They would take them home. They would love and care for them. They'd raise them as their own children. No one could understand why they were doing that. It was radically countercultural. 2,000 years on, and Christianity is still radically countercultural. We are not meant to blend in with the culture. We're meant to be distinctive. 
The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who, like babies, put their complete trust in the one who loves and cares for them. Our beliefs, moral judgments, and aspirations should be shaped by our relationship with Jesus and by his teaching. And now more than ever, we must bring our children to Jesus. Otherwise, they will be indoctrinated by whatever passes as true and right at this particular point in history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that uh, this world is in rebellion against you. And therefore, uh, we understand that it, it, it's no surprise that uh, your kingdom values do not line up with the world's values. And we thank you for this radical, countercultural teaching that calls us to a very different way of life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we as a church and as individuals, as families, will, will take this call seriously. We pray that we'll put you first in our lives, and we pray that we'll be prepared to have our attitudes and assumptions challenged by you. Father, we pray that we uh, will be spiritually hungry, totally dependent on you, and that we will imitate you, becoming more and more uh, like your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.